where we've left off in our travels through the gospel of Matthew is really Pontius Pilate in a bit of a precarious position. So the Jewish people, the leaders of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the high priest, the religious class, they have condemned Jesus to death. They have accused him, found him guilty of blasphemy via the, the, the use of false witness and false testimony. Jesus has been arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. He st- stood before uh, Annas, who was a pseudo-high priest, kind of the, the high priest in name, uh, the, the man with the title. So from Annas, he goes to Caiaphas. The, again, this is under the cover of darkness. This is late at night, uh, three o'clock in the morning-ish. From Annas to Caiaphas, this is where they condemn him to death, but they need an official ruling, and according to rabbinical writings, the Sanhedrin could only issue such a verdict in the daylight. So they have to wait uh, for the rooster to crow, which has some implications for, for Peter and his denial of Christ. The Sanhedrin condemns Jesus to death, but their right of execution of capital punishment had been revoked by the Romans in 6 AD. So while they wanted Jesus to be executed according to their law, they needed the permission of Rome which introduces us to Pontius Pilate, an interesting character. You can study him on your own. A historical figure, a man in history, is well documented, finds himself in the midst of a a, kind of a hot potato issue. Because here's Jesus, Pilate, and his first interrogation of Jesus is like, I don't understand why he's here. I don't get why these men want him killed, where the animosity is rooted where this is coming from, it's Passover. So not only is the city of Jerusalem swelled as far as the population over capacity, but just by the very nature of what the Feast of Passover was about, God's deliverance of the Jewish people out of Egyptian captivity, there's this patriotic uh, sense, this is fervor within the city. Jesus is someone that they loved, the people loved. When Jesus arrived to the city, In this famous scene, the people take down palm branches. They make a makeshift road. They start hailing him as their king. Hosanna, Hosanna, the king. So Jesus is arrested in darkness so that the mob, the multitudes, don't know what's going on. They want the deed done before the people are are aware of, of the deed. Pilate is sensing there's a lot of things at place. His number one job is to keep the peace. In fact, the one thing that would railroad his political career is a revolt, an uprising, death, mayhem. So he's in this pickle. He sends Jesus to Herod, thinking he's got an out. Herod had jurisdiction over the Galilee. Knowing that Jesus was Galilean, is like, well, hey, this could be my loophole. Jesus doesn't utter a word to Herod. So Herod sends him back to Pilate. And this is where we find Pilate. We kind of touched on this a little bit last Sunday. Let's go back to verse 11 of chapter 27. We'll get a running head start. We we read that Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus is already a bloody mess. He's been beaten upon. He's been spat upon. Are you the actual king of the Jews? And Jesus says, It is as you say. And while he was being accused of the chief priests and the elders, Jesus answered nothing. So Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they're testifying against you? Mount a defense. Give me a reason to let you go. But Jesus answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. Now, verse 15, at the feast, the governor was accustomed to releasing to the multitude one prisoner whom they wished. And at that time, they had, again, in in custody, a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. Therefore, when they had gathered together, Pilate said to them, Who do you want me to release to you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that they, speaking of the religious leaders, had handed him over out of envy. So Pilate's beginning to figure out what's happening. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, Pilate's wife sent to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things today in a dream because of him. What that dream had to have looked like, you know? Now, Jesus is a public figure. It's likely that Pilate, his wife, have had some measure of exposure. They're at least familiar with Jesus. They know his name. They know his ministry. This woman has a dream. 
Again, she's completely oblivious that Jesus has been arrested. The Romans have been involved until the early wee hour morning. And here she is, she's, she's tormented. What was the dream? Could it have been Jesus coming in glory? Hey, I know how this plays out. You want nothing to do with this man. Could have been the resurrection. Hey, you might sentence him, but he's going to rise. Watch out what you do with this man. Either way, we're included this testimony. Matthew's the only one that does it. Because Pilate, for what we're about to see, cannot be let off the hook. Not only does he have his own conscience saying this man's innocent, his own awareness that, hey, he's getting railroad, railroaded out of envy. Pilate is not ignorant. He's aware. He's connected. And then he has the testimony of his wife on top of it all. But the chief priests and elders persuaded the multitudes that they should ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. So the governor answered and said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. So Pilate said to them, what then shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And they said to him, let him be crucified. And the governor said, he pleads, why? What an interesting, an interesting read if you're a Jew. You have Jews pleading for the execution of a Jew by the Romans, and you have the Roman pleading with the Jews, why are we doing this? What's the point of this? You have, you have Rome advocating for the innocent man. You have the Jews advocating for his death. As we noted at the end of last Sunday's study, this is a small group of people. Again, this is in the wee early morning hours. This is 7 a.m., 8 a.m., somewhere in that time frame. Most of the city is, is sleeping or, or they're awaking. There is a, an unawareness of what's happening. Again, sometimes we'll say, look at the fickleness of the crowd. Hosanna, Hosanna, and now they want him executed. This is a, probably a different crowd. And Matthew gives us the insight that this is probably a crowd that's been cherry-picked by the religious leaders. They know Pilate's going to look for a loophole. They know this custom of releasing a prisoner, thinking, hey, this could be, this could be Pilate's way of circumventing us. Going to the people, getting the people to say, hey, release Jesus. And then Pilate can tell, turn to them like, hey, I'm not going to go against the wishes of the people. But this has been rigged. Again, Matthew's clear that it's the religious leaders that have gotten this mob together. And it's already loaded up against Christ. So release to us Barabbas. Crucify Jesus. Again, why? What evil has he done? Again, this, this testimony to Jesus' innocence. The lamb having been inspected, being declared by neutral arbitration to be blameless. But they all the more cried out, let him be crucified. And when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all, but rather that a tumult was rising, which is what he feared the most, he took water and he washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. It's worth noting that Pilate was not innocent at all. That he was very guilty. And all the people answered and they said, his blood be on us and on our children. If you know of Jewish history over the next 40 years or so, this rings true. So Pilate releases Barabbas to them. This notorious prisoner, who in another account we're told was a murderer, he was treasonous. So he releases Barabbas to them. And when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. You know, in, in the story, in, in, in the way it's presented, understand that the plan for the morning was an execution. Rome was planning on executing three prisoners this morning. Three. There were three crosses prepared. The site was already prepped. Barabbas is the guy that gets freed. Like, what, what was that night like for Barabbas? You know, Barabbas, did he go to sleep? Did he get a final meal? 
When the sun set, Barabbas expected that when the sun would rise, he would find himself nailed to a tree. What must it have been like for Barabbas to hear the guards coming to his cell, anticipating that this is the moment? But instead of being being led out, he gets brought before a multitude. And you have Pilate presenting this notorious prisoner to be Barabbas standing there next to Jesus. Imagine. Barabbas guilty in every way. Like if there's ever a picture of all of humanity, we find it in Barabbas, don't we? For Jesus took his cross. Jesus bore his punishment. Jesus was nailed to the cross meant for Barabbas. And in a sense, that's all of us as well. Matthew tells us that when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging. The intention of scourging was to bring forth a confession. Scourging was limited to 39 lashes. Technically it was 40, but they granted one as grace. So 39 lashes. The intention was confession. Yet Jesus never confessed. He spoke not a word during the scourging, meaning he took the brunt of it. We could do a whole study on scourging. I just want to read for you a description of a Roman scourging. Jesus would have been stripped naked with his hands tied to a post above his head. So imagine the scene. He's already been beaten. He's been spat upon. He's been mocked. He's been ridiculed. Now he's been condemned unjustly, falsely accused. He's stripped down. His hands are tied above his head to a post. And he would have been whipped 39 times across his shoulders, neck, back, and legs with what was known as a flagrum, also known as a cat of nine tails. It was a short whip that would consist of several heavy leather thongs that would have interwoven in them small bits of stone or rock or glass. Every strike of a flagrum would inflict incredible bodily harm. Here is a description of a first century historian of a scourging. We read, at first the heavy thongs cut through the skin only. Then as the blows continue, they cut deeper into the subcutaneous tissue, producing first an oozing of blood from the capillaries and veins of the skin, until finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels in the underlying muscles. The small balls of lead would first produce large, deep bruises, which are then broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is un is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is stopped. Matthew simply tells us, and when he had scourged Jesus. Imagine the scene. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium, And they gathered the whole garrison around Jesus. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. This is after the scourging. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off of him. They put his clothes back on him and led him away to be crucified. If the scourging wasn't enough, you now have this scene of humiliation. I don't want to beat a dead horse, but I do find it interesting how Matthew would have gotten access to this particular testimony. 
It's not as though that the apostles were allowed into the scourging room, the praetorium, to witness what was occurring. The only way that Matthew could have gotten this unique account would have been from the testimony of some of the soldiers that did the beating. Meaning that they likely had become converts. Imagine being one of those men, looking back your own recollections. How here's Jesus, this bloodied mess. We're told in Isaiah that Jesus no longer possessed the form of a, of a man, of a human. It wasn't this that you couldn't recognize Jesus. It's that you couldn't tell he was human. The damage done from the infliction of just the beatings, but then the scourging. And then they humiliate him. If all that wasn't enough, the Roman soldiers, again, this is the king of the Jews, sentenced to be executed. And they take a purple robe and they lay it across his back. Now after the mocking, after the humiliation, after the scene, they will remove that robe. Think about as the robe became interwoven with the, the blood and the skin and the scabbing and then to tear it off. Man, pulling off a Band-Aid, that hurts enough. Imagine the pain. We're told that Jesus, his beard was ripped from his face and they take a, a crown of thorns. They get thorns, they weave it into a crown and in this part of the world, the thorns are big. And they push this crown of thorns onto his head. If that wasn't enough, they take the scepter and they hit it even deeper. The bleeding, what must that have looked like? I must note that thorns is significant. That of all the things to find itself within the scene, it would be thorns. Why is that so interesting? Well, if you go back to the origin of thorns and thistles, they are the product of sin. As part of the curse of Adam, what did God tell him? From this point forward, because of your sin, the earth, it won't yield. Instead, there'll be thorns and thistles. We see this picture of sin, Jesus bearing sin, the humiliation. You know, being made fun of isn't, isn't fun, is it? Imagine being there, the mockery. Uh, let me add a caveat to that, that don't, don't misunderstand. So they come to arrest Jesus in the garden, right? Judas brings the cohort. And they say, are you Jesus. And Jesus utters two words, according to John's gospel. He says, I am. He utters the I am that I am statement in the garden. He claims to be Jehovah God. And boom, it, the word itself radiated and knocked everyone to the ground. But keep in mind that at any moment, this could have ended. You see, to me, when you read through and, and you see what Jesus is doing, you always have to check it with the reality that he could have stopped it at any moment. At any moment. And yet he doesn't. He, we're told in Scripture, endured the shame. He endured the cross. He accepted it. Why? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. See, it was love that motivated Jesus. It was a love for you. It was a love for me. It was love that endured the cross. At any moment, at any moment, Jesus could have said, time out. You know, these people ain't worth it. Just destroy them all and move on. And yet he endured and he continued. So they lead him away to be crucified. Now, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. And they compelled him to bear his cross. What would have been customary is that the, the main post of the cross would have been kept on site. What would have happened after the scourging, after the humiliation, is that Jesus, they would have taken the crossbar, which would have weighed anywhere between 100 and 200 pounds. You can find different opinions on that. 
from scholars. And it would have been the job of the prisoner to carry the crossbar out to the site of execution. And this would have been public. It would have been through the roads, through the streets. Understand Rome and an execution like this, a crucifixion. Again, Roman citizens were barred uh, from crucifixion. A Roman citizen was executed by beheading. The Jews would execute by stoning. Crucifixion is how the Romans would execute their enemies, the people under their authority, non-citizens. And the entire purpose, the intent, was to make a point. It was to be a public spectacle. It was to articulate, you don't mess with Rome, for there would be consequence. In fact, a cross, the site of execution, we'll get to in a moment, was always very public. It was on a public road, a public street. And a cross wasn't positioned super high. History seems to indicate that crosses were almost kept at eye level. Again, they wanted it real. A lot of times, prisoners would be eaten by jackals. Again, not super high, but right at face. It's public. Now, Jesus, because of the beating, because of the scourging, because of everything that he went through, is physically unable to carry the cross. It gives us some insight into just where he's at physically. What he's endured, what he's survived, even to this point, is superhuman. The strength, the endurance. He can't carry the beam. And so as it was the right of Rome, they could pick out anyone at any point, And you were obligated to do certain things upon request. In fact, it, uh, there, there, there are passages where Jesus addresses this idea, where a Roman soldier could come up to a citizen and say, hey, I'm tired of carrying this pack. I'm touching you. you got to carry it for two miles. And Jesus would be like, carry it for, for double that, you know. And if they want your cloak, give them another one. Like, Jesus talks about this. But, so Rome had this right, and so they pick out a guy. Again, this man is in Jerusalem, Simon the Cyrene. He's from Africa. He's there for Passover. Now, the moment he gets chosen to bear this cross, he's ceremonially unclean. But he has no choice. What must that have been, an experience for this man? History tells us, as a side, that Simon the, the Cyrenian would become a Christian. In fact, his wife would be a convert, his kids would be converts, and would be even involved in some of the ministries associated with the Apostle Paul. This moment, this man, this man came to Passover to offer a lamb as a temporary offering, not realizing that he would be included in the sacrifice of the lamb, which would take away his sins forever. And he bears this beam and he carries it. You'll meet Simon one day. How cool is that? Say, hey, what was, what was it like? Did you have your kids with you? You know, is there, was he, did he have a stroller? Was this super inconvenient? Where Mrs. Simon's like, really? And yet he carries this cross. He's compelled. He had no choice. And we're told that they, that they had come to a place called Golgotha. That is to say the place of a skull. Golgotha is a Greek, it's a Greek word, translated in Aramaic as place of the skull. Uh, we get from the Greek Golgotha, from the Greek into the Latin, we get Calvaria, which then from the Latin into English, we get Calvary. So Calvary 316, it is the place of Calvary that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And we're on Highway 316, so don't be confused. Calvary literally means the place of the skull. And there's quite a bit of debate and controversy in regards to the actual location of Golgotha. What we do know is that it was the place of execution, which indicates that it would have been probably the most populous road coming in and out of the city of Jerusalem. We also know that from the location of Golgotha, as we'll see, there was a centurion that is able to witness a lot of things happening. But mainly he's able to witness the veil in the temple being torn from top to bottom. 
Historically, if you go to Israel, you will be taken north of the city to a rock face. It was part of a quarry, and they'll call that Golgotha. Uh, there's a bus stop. You can't go up on top of it. They say it's the place of the skull because the, the actual mountain face looks like a skull. They say that that's the place of execution because, again, associated with Golgotha would have been a garden tomb in close proximity, and there are notable garden tombs. That particular location I have all kinds of problems with, and I could bore you with a treatise on that, and I won't. I am of the opinion, and this is one man's opinion that I think I can absolutely substantiate, is that Golgotha, the place of the skull, it's the reference not to a physical locale, but the execution place. And I think it makes way more sense for Golgotha to be on top of the Mount of Olives uh, than it does for it to be north of the city, mainly because it's the only location that gives you a perfect view, perfect sight line, into the temple which is facing east. The only way that you'd be able to see the veil torn from top to bottom from Golgotha would be if Golgotha was on the Mount of Olives. So the centurion could literally be standing there and see directly into the temple this incredible event take place. I think the significance of that is, is fascinating because uh, at the base of the Mount of Olives are a lot of tombs that date back to the first century. It fits the location. Um, it's the place um, where Jesus will ascend and return. It's also the location of the scapegoat. Again, we can go into this, but if you go to Leviticus, uh, it was the scapegoat taken. One was executed, but one was liberated. One was freed. The scapegoat was released to the mountain to the east of Moriah. That would have been the Mount of Olives. It's also the location where the, uh, the red heifer would be slaughtered for ultimate purification. I can go on and on and on about why I think it's the Mount of Olives. Here's the last point I'll make concerning it. From the Praetorium, if Jesus is executed, Golgotha being the top of the Mount of Olives, Jesus would have, would have left using the north gate to then immediately go around the temple. That gate would be the sheep gate. That's what it was known for. That's what it was known as. I think the significance of it, the beauty of Jesus as the Lamb of God, being led to his place of execution, coming out of the sheep gate, and then crossing the Kidron Valley, which is a torrent of blood. And for his blood to intermingle with the blood of the sacrifices. Again, I think the picture is beautiful. Regardless, Jesus is taken there. The place of a skull. And we're told that they gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink. This was an anesthetic. It was to temper the pain. When Jesus tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. The next four words. Then they crucified him. So much in just four words, right? They would have taken Jesus and thrown him down onto the timbers. They would have taken ropes to pull his arms out into place, his feet into its locale. They would have taken nails and driven his hands and his feet into the timber, upon which they would have hoisted the cross and would have gone into the hole, jarring the weight, Jesus' body, the shock, the come down, the first tearing of the tissue. Matthew just tells us they crucified him. They crucified him. And they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. Now we have a quotation of Matthew from Psalms 22, that they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. And they put over his head the accusation written against him, this is Jesus the king of the Jews, we're told in another passage that this is translated into the three common languages of the day. Again, over his head, adding to the mockery, Jesus likely still bearing the crown of thorns. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and another on the left. According to Luke chapter 23, one of these two will end up by watching Jesus coming to the important realization that while I might be guilty, this man is innocent. And famously, he says, will you remember me? 
And Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And those who passed by, we read, blasphemed him. Wagging their heads and saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also mocking with the scribes and elders, saying he saved others himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God, let him deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. And even the robbers who were crucified with him reviled him with the same thing. Again, one of them will change his tune. Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, there was darkness over the land. Jesus was crucified roughly about 9 a.m. The crucifixion would last six hours. So six hours until his body was taken off the cross. Uh, That was a very short uh, crucifixion. Most of the time, people that were crucified would live for days. And it would have been a horrific death, even more so than Jesus' experience. You can divide the three hours, the the six hours, into two sections of three. You have from 9 a.m. to noon. Again, the sun is out and Jesus is being mocked. He's being ridiculed. The passerbys. I mean, the scene around this cross. Not only have you these two robbers that are also crucified, mocking him, taunting him. You have the religious establishment there mocking him and taunting him. You have passerbyers doing the same. This is a scene. You also have a group of women at a distance. Disciples of Jesus there. John, we're told, was with them. Jesus' mother was present. You have the collection of all of humanity, the Roman soldiers, there to keep guard and watch. There are, from the cross, seven statements. Again, Matthew doesn't include them all. I'll, I'll run through them in case you're interested. At the early part of the crucifixion, as things are happening... We're told that Jesus states, again, this is recorded in Luke 23, that Jesus would say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And the tense is not that this was a one-time declaration. It's likely throughout the process of them nailing his hands and nailing his feet and hoisting him into the air that he was on repeat. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them, that this was something he was repeating and he was saying over and over and over again. The second statement, again, Luke 23, is the one that Jesus makes to this other thief at the cross where he says that you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus will also at some point, according to John 19, in this first three and a half hours, take care of his mama. He'll tell Mary to John, behold your son, and to John, behold your mother. Jesus makes sure that John would take care of his mother. The fourth statement comes in the second half of the six-hour crucifixion. Again, we'll go back to verse 45. At the sixth hour, so it's noon, it's high noon, until the ninth hour, that would be 3 p.m., there was darkness over the land. Now, that, this is a fascinating thing. The sky goes dark, and it's, it's noon. And I don't know if you know anything about noon. Sky shouldn't be dark. And there's a lot of debate, a lot of conversations about exactly what this was. Was this an eclipse? Can't be. Can't be because the Passover had to happen in a full moon. And a full moon, in case you're unaware, is when the moon's on the opposite side, can't pass in front of the sun. This can't be an eclipse of any kind. This has to be something supernatural, akin to what happened in Egypt. Was this just regionally? Is this something that just happened in Jerusalem? Well, Luke seems to indicate that this was worldwide. Now, I won't, again, bore you with it all, but if you're interested, there's a Bible study I listened to that spent about 45 minutes going through all the history, secular history, of pointing to a full blackout of the earth for about three hours in 32 AD. It's fascinating. It's unexplainable. 
other than the understanding that something is happening. You know, there's no uh, more mocking when the lights get turned out. Things immediately get sobering for everyone involved. Imagine being there, and boom, the lights turn out, and it goes dark. And people are scrambling for torches, for light, for some way to navigate. More than just darkness, there was something eerie about it. The hair on your arm would stand up. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, sabachthani. That is translated, so he makes this statement in Hebrew, but it's translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And this is the fourth statement that Jesus makes from the cross. Jesus, after this, will, will cry out, I thirst. John 19, only time we ever read of Jesus saying, I thirst, something deeper, a deeper longing, a thirst he'd never experienced now because of sin. Then according to chapter 19, verse 30, Jesus will cry out, Telestai, it is finished. And then he'll say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he'll die. Again, Jesus will surrender the cross. What's interesting. So the, the experience begins... With Jesus saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, Father, forgive them. Through the pain and the agony and the torment, Father, forgive them. And at the end of the experience, Jesus will once again say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. There will be this, this exhale, Father. But between the two, you have this statement, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And what makes that significant is what's missing. Does Jesus at that point refer to, to his father? No. It is the only time that Jesus just says, my God, my God. Indicating the totality of the experience, the culmination of his humanity that he who knew no sin, according to 2 Corinthians 5, at that point had become sin for us. So it's no longer Father. It's my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced a separation that he had never experienced. Something that is very difficult to explain. Other than the fact that we've experienced that separation. What must have been like for Jesus, I have no idea. But he feels forsaken. He feels separated. He experiences that shame and the conviction, the condemnation. He experiences the effects of sin. Not his sin, but ours. My God, my God. Eli, Eli. Lama Sabachthani. Let me read for you very quickly a little bit of the description of a crucifixion. The victim's back, first torn open by the scourging, is opened again as the congealing, clotting blood comes off with the clothing that's removed at the place of crucifixion. When thrown on the ground to nail the hands to the crossbeam, the wounds were again opened, deepening, contaminated with dirt, Driving the nail through the wrist severed the large median nerve. This stimulated nerve caused bolts of fiery pain in both arms and often resulted in a claw-like grip in the victim's hands. Beyond the pain, the major effect of crucifixion was inhibited breathing. The weight of the body pulling down on the arms and shoulders tended to lock the respiratory muscles in an inhalation state, hindering the ability to exhale. The lack of adequate respiration resulted in muscle cramps, which further limited breathing. To get a good breath, one had to push against the feet, flex the elbows, pulling from the shoulders. Putting the weight of the body on the feet produced more pain. 
flexing the elbows, twisting the hands on each nail. Lifting the body for a breath was painful as it scraped the back against the rough wooden post. Each effort to get a proper breath was agonizing, exhausting, and led to a sooner death. Not uncommonly, insects would light upon and burrow into the open eyes, ears, or nose of the dying and helpless victim. Birds of prey would tear at these sights. Moreover, it was customary to leave the corpse on the cross to be devoured by predatory animals. Death from crucifixion could come from many sources. Acute shock from loss of blood, being too exhausted to breathe any longer, dehydration, stress-induced heart attack, cognitive heart failure leading to cardiac rupture. If the victim did not die quickly enough, the legs were broken, so the victim was soon unable to breathe on his own. For hours... Jesus experiences unrelenting torment caused by these cycles of twisting, joint-rendering cramps caused by dehydration and loss of blood, intermittent asphyxiation as the cramps limit his ability to inhale and exhale, searing agony as tissue is further torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber just for a gulp of air. As time progresses, his heart begins to struggle to to pump, the heavy, thick, sluggish oxygen-deprived blood into the tissues as his tortured lungs are making frantic efforts to gasp even small gulps of air. There's a crushing pain that begins to rise deep within Jesus' chest as the pedicardium slowly fills with serum and starts to compress the heart. We will see that Jesus dies ultimately of a ruptured heart For when they take the spear up through his ribs, outflows, we're told by Luke, a doctor, a mixture of blood, serum, and water, meaning Jesus died. And it's not cliche to say, but literal, of a broken heart. And he could sense it coming. It is finished. My work is complete. And then he's restored, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. As these things are happening, some of those who stood, stood there, when he heard, again, Jesus saying, Eli, Eli, they think, well, but he's calling for Elijah. So immediately one runs out and they take a sponge and they filled it with sour wine. And they put it on a reed and offered it for him to drink. The rest said, leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes and saves him. So Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Again, this is where he says it's finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I want to I note that, so in verse 46, my God, my God, we, we get the phrase that Jesus cried out, cried out. That is the only time in which this phrase is used in Scripture. It's almost as though that the... the, the the description of what, the way in which Jesus says this, none of the other gospel writers will use the word again. Like This was a screech. It was a cry. It was a scream. It's repeated. He yells out again. He screams to be there. And he yields up his spirit. I would encourage you, if you, if you want more insight into the experience of Jesus on the cross, go to Psalms 22. Or read Isaiah 53. Again, there's some interesting descriptions of Jesus' experience where he says, the bulls of Bashan surround me. That there is a spiritual anguish, a spiritual torment. That there's demonic influences. There's a lot of things that are going on on the cross. And Jesus does it all for us. So he yields up his spirit. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom and the earth quaked and the rocks were split and the graves were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised and coming out of the graves after his resurrection they went into the holy city and appeared to many so when the centurion And those with him who were guarding Jesus saw, and note the earthquake, the things that happened, they greatly feared. Then they testified, truly, this man was the Son of God. And so Jesus, he dies. And immediately some things happen. Presumably the lights come back on. 
And there's an earthquake that rattles the city. And the veil in the temple is torn from top to bottom. Not torn from bottom to top, as a human would have to do. But the veil of separation that kept sinful man from the holy of holies was torn in two. It was eliminated. Man no longer has a need for a sacrificial system. Do you know that? You don't have a need to make sacrifices for God to be pleased with you. He's pleased with you from one reason, a sacrifice that was made and it's permanent. What Jesus did, the sacrifice Jesus made on the cross, eliminates your need to make sacrifices for God's pleasure. There is no need for a sacrificial system, nor do you need a priest to gain access to God. For Jesus is our high priest, that it's through Jesus we can approach the throne of grace, we're told boldly. The veil torn. Be, imagine you're a priest. In the temple, this darkness is trippy. So you've hustled around, you've lit some lights. I mean, you're busy. It's the Passover, there's all kinds of activity. There's hustle and there's bustle. And then at some point, the lights come back on and you hear the sound of a tearing. There's, a, there's some debate in, in regards to how big this particular veil was. I've read some commentators that say it was, it was 60 feet tall. I've read one that said it was 80 feet tall. There's estimates in regards to how thick it was from a minimum of four inches to feet. This is a massive piece of cloth. And it's designed to separate humanity from the Holy of Holies. Why? Because without a separation, you would die. And there's a tearing that's happening. Only one time a year was the high priest allowed to go in. And they would put tassels around the bottom of his garments. In case you no longer heard it, you could pull them out. There's a tearing. And you're a priest in the temple going about your business. And you look up and you see a rip beginning to form. And it's beginning, and you're like, oh no. The Shekinah glory is going to get out. This separation, what do we do? They're diving behind things. It's chaos. And this veil gets torn. And what's revealed? That this religion was empty. Because it revealed an empty room. No, for real. The Ark of the Covenant was never in Herod's temple. Last mention of the Ark of the Covenant, you go hundreds of years before this. There was no Ark of the Covenant in this Holy of Holies. There was no tablets of stone. There was no budded rod. There was nothing. And that's what religion is. It's a whole lot of work for an empty room. When we come to a cross to see an empty tomb. So this veil's torn. Now we're also told here. <laughs> that the graves were opened, many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Cool. This is one of those verses where you, you get to it, you read through it, and you're like, yeah, so that happened. And you kind of move on. I, I should note something I do think that's important. So the centurion sees a lot of things happen. We're not told that he sees the graves open and people walking around. Because note, when does that happen? It seems that Matthew includes this as a list of like supernatural things that take place around this. But note, again, look at it. They come out of the graves when? After his resurrection. It seems as though that, that the resurrection power, the power that was demonstrated in the resurrection of Jesus, had some reverberating effects on some of the tombs that were around where Jesus happened to be buried. And so this blast of resurrection power ends up loosening. Other people are resurrected at this moment. 
And I'm not so sure that these people are resurrected to then die again. I think these people probably just are resurrected to testify, and they're in heaven. I don't know. You can come up with your own theory. To have been there for that, right? So when the centurion, he sees these, they testify. (laughs) This guy was different. You see, everyone associated, everyone, everyone present, uh, they knew. These Romans knew. Truly, this was the Son of God. Now, as amazing a testimony as that is, it is false. Because the more accurate statement would be truly, this is the Son of God. For Jesus was not dead. And we're told that many women who followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, they were looking from afar, so they see these things happen. They see that Jesus has died. Among whom were Mary Magdalene, this woman that had been possessed, that Jesus had set free. Mary, mother of James and Joses, that's very likely Jesus' mother. And the mother of Zebedee's sons, James and John's mom, this would be Salome who was sisters with Mary. Now when evening had come, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself had also become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate commanded that the body be given to him, literally gifted to him. And when Joseph had taken the body, he wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and he laid it in his new tomb, which, was, which he had hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the door of the tomb and departed. And Mary Magdalene was there, the other Mary, sitting opposite the tomb, so they know, knew the location. Interesting, this man, Joseph of Arimathea, we're told is a disciple of Jesus, we know from rabbinical writings, the Talmud and whatnot, Josephus even, uh, that Joseph of Arimathea was a very powerful, well-known man. He's Joseph from the town of Arimathea, which was north of Jerusalem. He's one of the most wealthy, powerful men in the land. Hence, he can gain an audience with Pilate on a whim. He was a member of the Sanhedrin. Note, the Sanhedrin could convict someone to death With a unanimous vote minus two, likely Joseph of Arimathea was a nay, along with his friend Nicodemus. Matthew only records Joseph of Arimathea's kind of role post-death. So Jesus dies on the cross, it's 3 p.m. The Sabbat, all this would happen, things would have to be expedited by 6 p.m. sunset. So Joseph of Arimathea has a short window to get Jesus' body off the cross and down to his new tomb, of which no one has been laid, to begin the burial process that would stop for a few days until they could come back after the holy days uh, to finish. He goes to Pilate. He says, I would like the body, and Pilate gives it to him. Now, it was customary. This is an execution of criminals. They were to be left on the cross. Um, If they were to be removed, they would be thrown into the, the trash heaps. There was no dignified approach to the body of a criminal. They've gone through, they've broken the legs of the other two prisoners to expedite their death. They come to Jesus, there's no need, he's already passed away. The Romans are not going to remove the body. So you have Joseph of Arimathea, this older fella. He's like, Jesus needs a dignified burial. So he goes to Pilate. Pilate's like, you can do what you want, bud. And so we're told that he gets a a linen cloth, a cloth, and he's got to get the body off the cross. He needs some help. According to Mark 15 and also John 19, Nicodemus gets recruited in. So Joseph of Arimathea brings the cloth that they're going to use to get Jesus off the cross, and then they'll use with the burial. Nicodemus brings about 100 pounds of burial spices, according to John. These two old men come to the body. 
And they get up and they weave the cloth under his arms, across his chest, back up over the cross. Why? Because someone's got to hold Jesus in place while the other guy removes the nails. They don't, you don't want to remove one and his body flop over and tear off the other. You've got to hold him in place. So you've got Nicodemus holding from behind. We remove the nails from his feet. And they lower his body down. And these two old men carry his body down to a tomb. And they begin a process of cleaning it. They take water and they begin to wash the wounds. They know their time's short. They've got to expedite it. They'll have to finish it later. They take the crown of thorns off his head. And they prep the body. They clean it the best they can. And they put a shroud on top of the body. They tuck it along the sides. They tie his ankles and his knees together. They put his arms over his chest. They put another cloth across his face. What must have that been like for Nicodemus, for Joseph of Arimathea? These men of power, of dignity, of nobility, they're a bloody mess. Imagine going home and washing out the blood of Jesus from your own hands. You know why these men would be disciples forever. The blood-stained clothes. By his blood, by his stripes, we have been made, we have been made clean. And they prep the body. It's a new tomb. And that's important. Joseph of Arimathea would have had a family tomb in Arimathea, which is where all of his family would have been buried. The way that the tombs worked is that you had ossuaries inside, so you'd put the body in the tomb, and then it would be a, a two-year process by which you would decay. And then about two years into it, they'd come back, they'd roll the stone, they'd sweep up your bones into a little box, and they'd put it on a shelf. The tomb's ready for another occupant. So you'd have generations of family in the same tomb, and yet Joseph of Arimathea wants a new tomb, and he wants it in Jerusalem. Joseph of Arimathea was a man with a longing for the coming of Christ. A new tomb, not one body in it, which is important. That's a significant detail, because if it was a normal tomb, there could be some debate as to which body came out. But there was no body in this one but Jesus. So these men, they prep the body, they lay it there. There's some spices involved. They roll the stone. The women look on, probably recruited to be the next wave to finish the process after the holy days. So on the next day, and we'll just close with this, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said, After three days I will rise. Therefore command that the tomb be made secure until the third day, lest the disciples come, his disciples come by night and steal the body away, and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, so the last deception will be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard which means you have access to a Roman guard because they're getting Pilate's permission. It's not just the temple guard. Go your way. Make it as secure as you know how. And so they went, and they made the tomb secure, sealing the stone and setting the guard. This is only recorded in Matthew's account, but it gives us a further insight into the scene. They go on the day of preparation. They request a guard. That guard is granted. And why? Even Jesus' enemies knew what he had said. Jesus, there had been a full disclosure. I'm going to Jerusalem. This is what's going to happen. Guys, don't worry. Three days later, I will be resurrected. I will rise again. And Jesus' enemies are like, we can't have that. You know who's forgotten? 
Peter, James and John, Bartholomew, Matthew. These men are nowhere to be seen. There's no anticipation. In fact, the women on the next morning will come, why? To finish the process of burial. The darkest moment in human history is recorded here. When God sent the Savior and we killed him. But it's not the end of the story. So, Father...